What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life, and love, and all things literary. Maria Sample, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So please, let's get right into it so everyone can understand how this really brilliant book uh, launches. Today will be different. Today I will be present. Today anyone I speak to, I will look them in the eye and listen deeply. Today I'll play a board game with Timby. I'll initiate sex with Joe. Today I will take pride in my appearance. I'll shower, get dressed in proper clothes, and change into yoga clothes only for yoga, which today I will actually attend. Today I won't swear. I won't talk about money. Today there will be an ease about me. My face will be relaxed, its resting place a smile. Today I will radiate calm. Kindness and self-control will abound. Today I will buy local. Today I will be my best self, the person I'm capable of being. Today will be different. Thank you. I feel like we've all tried to have those days. What were you feeling when you sat down to write that? I was actually sitting in a chair with a yellow pad and a sharpened pencil, which is how I start my writing days. I have a row of sharpened pencils ready to go, my tools of the trade. And I didn't have an idea for a book and I didn't know what I would write. And I sat down and thought, what is a part of me deep down where I feel like I'm a complete failure? And how how can I maybe tap into something that will have enough energy to sustain me over the next year or two years, the time it takes to write a novel. And I just sat down and wrote that page and I I, uh, changed the names to protect the innocent, but um, it really was a, a snapshot of where I was in my life at that moment where I had um, come off a great success as a novelist and I daily felt very disappointed in myself. I didn't feel um, 
like I was being the person I knew that I was capable of being, and it was a real sense of sorrow that I was carrying around with me. And did you feel that from the community you were very kind of put on a pedestal and that that made it even harder to have these... Because Eleanor Flood, we have to, the protagonist in the book, is so witty and so smart and also and also says and thinks all the things that I think we all do but feel incredibly guilty about. And, I mean, I'm just wondering if that gulf kind of made that those the guilt even more acute. I wish I could say that I was walking around feeling... Um, loved by the community, uh, because I think that's one of the strange things about success, uh, to the degree that I've had it, which uh, in literary terms is small, but you think, oh, now I'll be healed, now the hole will be filled up, and I can go on with my life a happy, well-adjusted person now that I've gotten this thing that I've strived cravenly for for the last 50 years. And, and you get it, and it doesn't really, it, it doesn't connect to that deep part of you. Uh, it's the best I can say. And, mm. and um, a lot of other people have put it better. And in fact, that's essentially what the whole Bruce Springsteen memoir is that I just read on the plane oh, over. Wow. It really is. I mean, he puts this into words really well. And not that I'm anywhere close to him, but there is something about you want this thing in your whole life. You've been saying, if only I have that, it'll make me happy. And then you get it. And it's just a, a round peg in a square hole and and you go wait it it was supposed to be better than this and so I think that's what I was trying to really um write about myself because I felt really embarrassed um that that I couldn't carry that sense of um kind of fulfillment around with me yeah and she's I mean she's at a moment where she's questioning and I heard a fabulous conversation you had I think a few years ago um, with the Aspen Institute where you talked about how you pick up a story when the coping mechanisms aren't working. Yes. And I just love that and I mean what's happened to Eleanor at this point? Well that's exactly how I try to frame my novels is I it is especially if it's a book that has the audacity to be called today will be different and and takes place on what I was really trying to to do um, make it a fundamentally ordinary day you know this is not a day where she has to defuse a nuclear bomb or anything it's just mm -hmm. a woman who wakes up and sets the bar low for herself to just try to get through the day without making the world a worse place uh, than 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 she found it, and so, um, in in my construction, today is the day that Eleanor's coping mechanism has failed, and the coping mechanism is compartmentalization, that she has this injury in her past with her sister, and her coping mechanism has been to compartmentalize it. And I thought about that because I was uh, talking to a friend of mine, a former shrink, now friend, a guy named Phil Stutz, who's terrific, who wrote a book called The Tools, and he's really brilliant. And I was talking to him about uh, something in my life, and I said, oh, yeah, well, I've compartmentalized that. And just with a wave of a hand, he said, 
yeah, compartmentalization doesn't work. Oh, it doesn't? <laughs> exactly. I was so <laughs> shocked. And so that's exactly what I'm bringing to this book is that scream of yours right there is go, wait, I thought compartmentalization was a really good coping mechanism. And so um, it, this is the day when she's been she's built a wall, be a firewall between her present and her past. And this is the day that that firewall gives. And she's on her way to have lunch with a friend. Oh, <laughs> yes. oh poor Sydney. <laughs> now, oh, I have a great quote about Sydney. The friend for 10 years I haven't been able to shake or I haven't been able to shake her for 10 years. And I thought, we all have these people in our lives. And why don't we have the guts to shake them? Absolutely. I have so many friends who... I feel like are my best friends in the world or would be my best friends in the world if I ever saw them. And yet <laughs> I find that I'm just, I, I'm spending my time and gobbling up all my lunch, my free lunches with these people who are just really persistent. And at some point you just go, okay, I just got to see them just so the inbox will settle down a bit. Um, yet the the terrible irony of that is then when you see them, then you're now, um, on a quicker More cycle entwined. with them. Yes, they're they're like, oh, wow, it's been, we, we used to have lunch every, you know, two times a year, and now it's up to four times a year. <laughs> and so I really think about that. I think, wait, why am I seeing you more than I'm seeing a great friend of mine, who in theory is only my great friend, because I never get around to seeing her. And have any of your actual friends thought they might be a Sydney for you and had to talk to you about it? Well, yeah, a couple people <laughs> have when they've read it have said, oh, I hope I'm not your Sydney Madsen. And they're not. And I no. will say there, I, I did have, you know, the person that I had in mind is Sydney Madsen is really not someone I know very well. It's just, I had one lunch with this person and Fifteen years later, I'm still kind of traumatized by it. <laughs> so, <laughs> what happened? No, it's just exactly in just, the book. They were just yeah. so annoying, and they just got under my skin, and it just, and and it really um, was, uh, it, it was really out of my book. Where I, I went home to my boyfriend, and I just said, I, I can't stand this person. And then uh, it was a new friend, and this my boyfriend George said, well, maybe. Maybe that's why uh, she's so eager to see you is because no one else will see her. And maybe that's why she got so interested in your friendship. So it kind of took me down a peg, but he was absolutely right about that. So. That's so great. So I'm really interested in how you started out because you went to Barnard here in New York. An English major at Barnard. I was just mm -hmm. talking to a friend about it that just a wonderful uh, major from the mid-80s. Um, <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of us fine Barnard English majors who had no idea how that could turn into a career, yet we did it anyway. Yet you did it. And mm -hmm. in, I mean, in this book, the tension is between New York and Seattle. Eleanor, you know, fantasizes about New York, and her and her husband have a deal, which is 10 years in you know, if we go to Seattle for 10 years, then we can go somewhere else. But, you know, in her mind, it's New York. Do you have that deal in real life? Was that ever part of your idea? I mean, not about New York, but about somewhere else? Well, we did make a deal to move to Seattle. Ah. Um, my my boyfriend and I did. We were in um, television. He was a writer for The Simpsons Forever, mm -hmm. and I was a writer on other shows. And when I first met him on our first date, he said, I don't want to live in 
Los Angeles forever. I want to just do my time and then get out. And I had, I just kept him there for a really long time because I, I'm uh, very seduced by just all the um, glamour and pettiness of Hollywood. <laughs> It suited me just fine, and I didn't want to leave. So he said, hey, you've been promising me for a long time we could go. And so one day, just in a strange, impulsive fight, I said, fine, we'll go. And I went on the Internet and looked at houses. And then before I knew it, I was going up there and buying an apartment out of the blue. And that's how it all happened. That's why we had no friends there when we moved there, because it was just this really high-stakes um, dare uh, that I thought that would I would never it, w it would never be followed through on, and then it was, and suddenly I found myself in Seattle where I knew nobody. Um, okay, this is a good <laughs> this is a good place to read an excerpt from the book. That's also another favorite about this tension here. Right after Joe and I moved to Seattle, we went to the state fair, my first one ever. It has since become a tradition. Of course, this native New Yorker was horrified at the parolee vibe and average weight of my fellow milling attendees. Around every corner, teardrop trailers sold raspberry scones. Pride of Washington, the signs beamed. I thought, how sad for Washington State to be proud over so little. Such could be said of the entertainment offered. We were expected to marvel over goats in pens, be amazed at vegetables arranged to look like the Washington State flag. Gather around for jewelry cleaning demos. I must have been on my feet too long, or maybe it was the September heat, but when I saw the genuine delight Joe took in cheering his entry in a pig race, look at that, they're chasing an Oreo. My defenses went kaput. I actually felt at one with the doughy white mass of humanity, these Washingtonians with their guns and Jesus and blue blockers. And I thought, how sad for you, New York City, you self-obsessed crack whore with your status-obsessed, edgy, darting eyes, your choked sidewalks, your cancerously reproducing architect design Prada stores, your breathless yak about real estate prices drowning out all civilized conversation, your deafening restaurants impossible to get into, your cheap TV stars muscling out real talent on Broadway, your smelly streets clogged with blacker SUVs, with darker tinted windows furring richer and richer hedge fund creeps. And where does it leave you? Still chasing yesterday's high. In that moment, I loved our new life in dumpy Washington State, and especially Joe for dragging me here and saving me from my Manhattan-centric worst self. <laughs> See, that's pretty rough, isn't Whoa. it? Whoa! <laughs> I <laughs> love, I mean... <laughs> It is when you read it out loud. I know, I'm just afraid God. of you going to other places and what you might think of them. But this is why we love your book so much. And I love New York, just for the record. I, I love New York, and I would live here in a second, but I don't think I could drag George here. Uh, well, the husband in the book, Joe, a big reason that um, the couple moves to Seattle is because it's the most godless city in America. Is that true? It is. Uh, at one point, I read that it was the most atheistic city in America. And does it feel like that when you live there? I think probably all cities do. I mean, I think if you know... A I guess certain, it depends. Yeah, type of person. And, and I think that I certainly write, I would say, atheist, atheistic novels in that I write about kind of highly educated 
people who, in my experience, are t tend towards atheism. Hmm. Um, another part of the book that I found very interesting, and it's that Eleanor Flood is the daughter of an alcoholic. Yes. And I'll just read a bit of this one part that really struck me. She says, it's the single determining factor of your personality. It means you blame yourself for everything, you avoid reality, you can't trust people, you're hungry to please. Um, and I wanted to ask, what are these witchy powers that Joe says she has? And why was it important for Eleanor to be that character? Because I don't have alcoholic parents. However, I felt very connected to those feelings mm. of being hyper aware and a watcher and observer to my detriment. Almost. Right. And, and to any child of an alcoholic, anyone who um, particularly goes to Al-Anon or any of these support groups who's had an alcoholic in their life, um, it really, there is a personality type. And um, we children of alcoholics really immediately can recognize each other. It's like you have x-ray specs and you can just say, oh, your parents were drunks, you know, or you grew up in an alcoholic household. And what happens, I think, just as a very crude way of putting it, is that when you're a child and there's alcohol in the family, you don't understand that alcohol is making your parents' mood change, you know, or, or you could come to them with something mm -hmm. on one day and they'll be really happy about it and the next day they'll be really angry about it or the next day they'll be too drunk to even notice it and so you start to um first of all you think it's your fault and you think you've done something wrong and but beyond that you just become hyper vigilant about reading the signs and trying to figure out wait what's going on and it's just this this um kind of horrible animal instinct that you carry with you and and everything becomes like you're almost doing three-dimensional chess with every single interaction that goes on and you walk into a room and you're you know will just see looks between people and and read into them and I I maintain be right about it you know, that, that I feel like I certainly have that. And I will be in a meeting or I'll be, you know, at the dinner party and you're downloading on the, on the way home and you pick up on things. And I don't want to say I'm 100% right, but I certainly notice things that other people don't notice. And so um, that's why I've given this to Eleanor and called it her witchly powers because um you can kind of look at an exchange and go, I know exactly what that meant. And, 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 and it's, it appears like you're taking this huge leap and coming up with a very strange conclusion. And a large percentage of the time you're right about it. And, and it's only this, this like horrible muscle that's been overdeveloped is the one that's giving you the ability to recognize it. And in your TV writing, because that's the nuances of that are so, the subtext is so important and it's such a beautiful part when it works. Do you think that helped you in those early years like to write, you know, to have people uh, having dialogue but of course mean completely other things? 
Yes and no. I mean, I think one of the rules about dialogue is it should never be about what it's about. You know, I think that's just, I think anyone can do that, you know, mm -hmm. in a way. I think that you're always trying to, um, you, you always need to understand the subtext and then need to understand what's going on on top of it and then how you're going to put it in a dialogue to make it kind of interesting and to, yeah, to find that line between obscure and and on the nose, you know, you have to kind of find that so that the subtlety will come through. And actors bring a lot to that, I will say. You know, I think that you can read, uh, I don't know if you've ever read a David Mamet play. I mean, it, it really reads as complete gibberish. You think there's no way anyone can act this. And then you see it up on stage and the fabulous Mamet actors just bring it to life and it makes complete sense. And so, yeah, I think that, that those, that... Uh, it's, I thought you were going somewhere else with a question, and so I will answer that. Answer the that. other good question. Yeah, but, but I would say it actually helps you because the dynamics in a rewrite room, you're all sitting around a table, and there is so much subtlety in the personal interaction that a lot of times when you'd be in a rewrite room and the, you know, you'd pitch a joke and the boss would um, maybe flinch a little bit but just keep on talking you know, okay, he didn't like my joke, but then the guy across the table was like, hey, you might not have heard my pitch. And and I just think, gee, you should have drunks for parents because yeah. you're about to get fired because yeah. you know, you just keep repitching a joke that's not good. You know, and so it's kind of funny in that actually I think it helps you with the dynamic within a writing staff is, mm. is reading all those signals because I think that, sure, there's a lot of talented people, but I think like any kind of office environment that, that where you need to collaborate and there's a group of people um, working together I, I think most of the most of the time what undoes people is their personalities and 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 they're you know you just don't want to be around them is the thing and that's really what you're doing when you're hiring people on a writing staff it, they've written a script that's good enough and it's not even that you're looking at the scripts and really doing like fine edits on them in your mind of who is the best writer. You're like, okay, these people will probably be able to write my show. Now, who can I stand to be in a room with? You know, and that's really what the, what the interviews are about. I have to ask you, what was it like working on my favorite show of the 90s, Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, well, oh, that's so fun. Well, that was my first show, and my oh. friend um, Darren Starr was a great friend. Um, and things happened to me that I don't quite know how to explain it, but one of the things is that I was in Aspen where I grew up as a kid, and I was on a chairlift, and it, it in those days, it was a double chair. Uh, the kids don't know that, that I think it's now four, four uh, high-speed quads, all the chairs are. But in the old days, only two people do a chair. And I um, was in line, and I was in the single line, which meant that you weren't paired up with someone. And then a guy came into the single line, and he was my age, and we were maybe... Um, I, we were both high, uh, college age, and we started talking on the chairlift, and he was from Washington, D.C., and his parents were staying at the Gantt, and they had no place to go for Thanksgiving, and I just said, oh, you should come over to our house for Thanksgiving, and uh, it was Darren Starr, and we ended up being oh great God. friends, and he ended up being a screenwriter, kind of kicking around for a while like I was. Um, he, he had a higher level of kicking around than, than I did, but, uh, he really found himself on 90210 and then gave me a job there. And I didn't do great on that show, I would say, because I, I wasn't, um, 
really aware yet that I was a comedy writer. You know, I thought, oh, it was teens, and I do like melodrama, and I think I like watching that stuff. But I think when I get in a room with the with the other writers and the scripts, I just have to make a complete mockery of all the characters on the show. That's just my basic instinct, which is what a rewrite room in sitcoms <laughs> are. You're just spend 90% of the time trashing the characters and then you have to get back to work and some, <laughs> you know, it's just really dark what goes on in sitcom rewrite rooms. Um, but, but in 90210, I mean, we were not physically in the same place as the set. The set was like deep in the valley. So the truth is we were not interacting with the actors a lot, you know? And so I think I met them a couple times, but I wish I could tell you I was in there, you know, I don't know what you what your fantasy would be that I'm but doing coke no, with Dylan love... or something, but that did not happen. <laughs> Luke, what's his name? We'll what edit it out. I so you said I did coke. <laughs> yeah, sorry, with I, did, I did coke yeah. with Luke. No, what's his name? No, Dylan. And it was see, this is my brain. This is my Eleanor Flug brain. That's terrible that I don't remember his name. There was it was Dylan. It was Dylan and, the and guy, it was Oh, look at oh, us. Oh, I We're really so liked him. I do, too. Oh, oh. my. See, everybody, oh, you're well. too young. It was that guy. I um, know, but so, no, that that was not happening. Jason Priestley. Okay, there's a first and last name oh, I yes. remember. I will just blur it out just because I you, can't I remember loved him. <laughs> Well, it's lucky that you got on that chairlift because didn't you used to avoid going up with anyone so you could play out your fantasies? Oh, my gosh. You have totally done your homework. I love <laughs> this. Yes, in fact, that... Um, you know, I would I would be in the single line and only on on uh, holidays, which is probably what Darren was there over a holiday. And so they forced you to take the chair up with other people because the real estate was too valuable. You couldn't have an empty seat going up the chairlift. This in the old days, uh, chairlift lines were really, really long before they the chairlift started getting really fast. And that was really part of the bummer of skiing is most of the time you were waiting in line. And so during the off days, yes, I would love to go up on the trail of a spy myself. And I would even love it when they got stuck, uh, granted, if, uh, if, if it was not too cold. But I would just sit there and fantasize in nature and be there and it was so quiet. And I would uh, spin very intense fantasies that usually, okay, I've never even said this. They usually had to do with me um, being... Um, the source of like a power ballad, like the inspiration for a power ballad. You know what I mean? And so it would be like some like whatever band I was into that they there'd be some song that was really cool. And so that would be my starting point that like that was written about me. And then the whole fantasy of like our life together and it, it's so embarrassing. But yes, there are some very intense fantasies. And I really think that that's where I learned to just create very vivid scenarios. And I, I could just be up there forever just thinking and fantasizing. And it's interesting because now sometimes I, I try to do it and, and I can't do it. And maybe that's um, what success does is you get old and jaded and you think, oh, even if Beth, I hear you calling, was written about me, <laughs> it wouldn't solve all my problems. <laughs> but wait, Eleanor, though, I feel like she employs Alonzo, her poet, to kickstart that part of her. Is that how, I mean, why was it so important for him to be there? Because I just love him so much. You should, if you could explain what their relationship is. Yes, I love Alonzo. So Alonzo Wren is a poet uh, who works at the University of Washington. And she is worried that her brain is uh, turning to mush. 
um, and that she can't remember anything. And so she thinks that she will hire a private tutor to teach her poetry. And part of the poetry lessons are he assigns her a poem every week and she spends the week memorizing it to kind of sharpen her brain. And then she she meets him at, at breakfast and then she memorizes the poem and they discuss poems. And so uh, I love Alonzo and Alonzo is, is very much based on my real life poetry teacher. Oh, you, uh, so you do have... I do this. <gasps> and, and that skunk hour that's marked up is my skunk hour. I, that was one of my favorite poems that he... Um, assign me, and I I was able to get the reproduced Skunk Hour by Robert Lowell in the book, um, and the, and that was a, a a lovely poem that has always affected me, and the imagery really um, moves me still and, and scares me, uh, and so I just love. Um, so Ed Skoog is my poet, um, even though he's even though it it, it kind of. The Alonzo Eleanor thing—that's me and Ed. That really, uh, the 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 true life version of us really stops and starts at the first meeting they have, and then he comes back, and all that stuff is made up. But I emailed Ed and I said, "Okay, so this is obviously based on you, but I'm just giving you some bad fate." And he said, "Go right ahead. I'm very honored to be your poet." Oh, I um, and so yeah, I think that that uh, you know she really does it just to sharpen her brain more than anything. Very early on, uh, you reveal that there's the beast inside of Eleanor. And I love the beast because I'm quoting now, the beast in me plays out on a painfully small scale. Regrettable microtransactions usually involving Timby, my friends, or Joe. And this is what I love so much about Eleanor is because, I mean, I can identify with her and we all can because your anxieties play out on these almost pathetic little ways. That really hurt people. Yes, yeah, when they add up. Mm -hmm. But as we work through the novel, the compassion, her compassion becomes so much greater. Yes. Why was it important to explore this beast inside of her and to have it change? Well, that really is the premise of the book is today will be different is I think that the beast is the the first page in action you know it's why it's why she has to have her morning incantation of today will be different you know it's because she recognizes that she goes through the day and her anxiety is so great that she goes to sleep at night just going through the day and realizing all the hundred tiny ways she has failed her husband and her son and it's not the expression of her that she wants and that's why it's important that I ended that first page uh today I will be the person I know I'm capable of being because she knows the beast is not an expression of who she really is and yet if you go around with her, you'd think that that's who she was because those are her actions, you know, and ultimately you are judged by your actions and not by your heart. And so what I really tried to do is kind of turn her inside out by the end of the book. And she is much more centered by the end of the book. And, and it's subtle, you know, it's not a um, really huge change. But when I was writing it, you know, there's a lot of loop-de-loops and diversions and hide the ball going on in the narration in the first part of the book. And by the time we get to the end of the book, she really 
kind of becomes a straightforward narrator and she's not telling you jokes and and she's not letting her anxiety uh, control the narrative. Oh, that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was brilliant. <laughs> it was so fun. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.